Welcome to Bent on Education podcast, a podcast focusing on evidence-based review of physiology, pharmacology, pathophysiology, and other anesthesia-related topics. I'll discuss being a clinical preceptor, a mentor, and a leader. This podcast is by CRNA for SRNAs and others seeking to build their basic knowledge base. So let's get bent on education. Good morning. It is my pleasure today to talk about the autonomic nervous system. Some of your texts will call it the involuntary nervous system. The reason being is that there is no conscious effort required for the system to function. We don't decide when to tell our hearts to beat, when our lungs need to take a breath. So keep that in mind as we proceed um, on with the presentation. What is the purpose of the autonomic nervous system? Simply put, we need it to survive. Remember the fight or flight mechanism you learned probably in ninth grade biology class, maybe in your first biology class in um, college. This is how the body reacts to danger. That is a mechanism of the autonomic nervous system. Remember that it has involuntary activities, as I said earlier. The regulation of smooth muscle, your cardiac musculature, for example. Again, can you imagine having to tell your heart to beat or tell your lungs to breathe? That would be taxing for us to do all day. Barish, one of our anesthesia-specific textbooks, describes anesthesia as the practice of autonomic medicine. So we alter this system so much during the course of our anesthetics that we deliver. The autonomic nervous system's job is to maintain homeostasis in the body in spite of external and internal changes within the body's environment. So that makes a lot of sense. Like the body just tries to keep itself in balance regardless of what's going on on the outside of the body. Recall that there are two distinct areas of autonomic control in the cerebral cortex. Also noted is there are two branches of the autonomic nervous system. One is the sympathetic branch and the other is the parasympathetic branch. We'll go into detail in these branches um, a little bit later. Know that input from various sensory systems can affect those higher cortical centers. Um, And as a result of that, patients can become tachycardic and peripheral vasoconstriction would herald the fight or flight mechanism response. Or consider those patients that are more vasovagal responders, so those that would faint, for example. These are well-known examples of higher cortical sensory processing uh, that is specific to the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. So some of the activity of the autonomic nervous system are visceral reflexes. Remember that external stimuli can represent a threat or a danger. And when that threat or danger is detected, these uh, senses So our sense of hearing, our sense of touch, our sense of smell or sight, they will help protect us from these. These signals are sent to the brainstem where the reflexes respond and they are processed in uh, the hypothalamus and the limbic forebrain of the brain. Keep in mind, so when we talk about things like that, let's discuss if you were, everybody knows this example, if you were to put your hand on a hot stove, you can't just leave your hand there. I mean, it would burn, right? 
But if we have those senses intact, our autonomic nervous system is what detects that heat and makes us withdraw our hand from that fire. The other activities of the autonomic nervous system is that it organizes the thoughts of the body. It adjusts the body's being, how we are, remember, to those internal and external stimuli. And it responds to the stress of the body. Our higher cortical centers provide that descending input to the paraventricular nucleus of the hypothalamus. And so when we look at Anatomically, these have those projections to the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nuclei. Chronic stress alters these structures and their function, so this can lead to both sensitization and habituation of the stress response. Our body figures out either we're going to be sensitized to the reaction or we create a habitual response to the same reaction that we may have. Anatomically speaking, What are the organs of the autonomic nervous system? Basically, it's every organ in the body, right? So we'll come back to the anatomy of the system in a few minutes. But consider these are, you know, the organs that are responsible for autonomic response. The heart, our blood vessels, they figure out when to constrict and when to dilate. Our bronchial smooth muscles, the GI tract, of course, the bladder, our sweat glands, our apocrine glands as well. The skeletal muscle is the only innervated part of the body that is not under control of the autonomic nervous system. Keep in mind that the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system, they actually work in opposition to each other. Our parasympathetic nervous system is our cervical sacral system, and it releases acetylcholine as its primary neurotransmitter. We'll talk about that um, towards the end. Our sympathetic nervous system or our thoracolumbar system releases norepinephrine and epinephrine for that matter. Again, we'll get into details. So what is the response and effect of the different um, branches of the autonomic nervous system? The adrenergic or the sympathetic nervous system typically increases or constricts organs um, and responses, and that's the effect as well to when this sympathetic output is stimulated. When we talk about our cholinergic response, that is of the parasympathetic response, decreases, dilates, and secretes. So the output center of the autonomic nervous system actually resides in the medulla oblongata and the pons of the brainstem. Immediate control of blood pressure, heart rate, um, cardiac output, and ventilation is organized and integrated in specified nuclei of the medulla oblongata and the pons for that matter. So when we talk about tonic impulses from the nuclei, such like you know, the nucleus uh, tractus solitaris, it maintains our blood pressure. And these are terms and things that you probably have not heard before, but get your mind used to uh, recognizing uh, these aspects of the autonomic nervous system. So when we talk about the uh, nucleus tractus solitaris, for example, it maintains your blood pressure and it responds to the afferent signals from the sensory side of the autonomic nervous system. So these afferent impulses are from the vagus nerve, the glossopharyngeal nerve, and what happens, it results in vasodilation and bradycardia. So we can talk in depth about, you know, what the responses are 
by the sympathetic nervous system and by the parasympathetic nervous system when each one is stimulated. What is the function? When we look at the parasympathetic nervous system, we'll talk about that first and then we'll talk about the sympathetic nervous system. When we talk about the parasympathetic nervous system, some of the functions of that system are your pupils constrict, increases in your saliva production, uh, reduction in your heart rate, constriction of your bronchi, for example, constriction of your urinary bladder and stimulation of the activities of the pancreas and the gallbladder as opposed to the sympathetic nervous system where the functions are to dilate the pupils. Again, you think of that fight or flight reflex where somebody is wide-eyed and their pupils are dilated um, in response to something that they feel like they need to flee from. Um, Inhibition of the saliva production, dilation of the bronchi. Uh, When our sympathetic nervous system is stimulated, of course, the heart rate increases the activities of the digestive system decreases because everything is flowing through our primary organs or our um, those organs that we need in order to survive the heart. We need to be able to breathe, things like that. Uh, inhibition of the gallbladder. So all of the opposite uh, effects or the functions of the parasympathetic nervous system, you will see with the sympathetic nervous system. Our alpha motor neurons is the common pathway that links the central nervous system to the skeletal muscles. The sympathetic and the parasympathetic, they are the final common pathway from the central nervous system to our visceral targets. So the, the peripheral motor parts of the ANS are made of, and ANS, when I say that, I mean the autonomic nervous system, are made up of two specific neurons the preganglionic and the postganglionic neurons. The main difference between the preganglionic and the postganglionic neurons is that the preganglionic neurons are neurons that arise from the central nervous system and supply the ganglia, where the postganglionic neurons are the neurons that arise from the ganglia and and, uh, then they supply the tissue. It makes sense before the ganglia and then after the ganglia. So the ganglia in in essence, is a function like a relay station, right? So it's that where one nerve enters and another nerve exits. So think of the ganglia, those of you who are athletes or who have watched relay races, it's that area where you're handing off the baton. So that's how I like to think of things sometimes. Think of them as common you know, activities of daily living. You, everyone who's watched the Olympics and they've handed off the baton, think of that area as the ganglia. Let's talk first about the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system originates from the uh, thoracolumbar region of the spinal cord and the nerve fibers extend to paired ganglia along the sympathetic chains. So that's immediately lateral to the vertebral column. Um, So when we look at the sympathetic nervous system, those preganglionic sympathetic fibers, not only synapse at the ganglion of the level of their origin in the spinal cord, but they can also course up and down the paired ganglia as well. Speaking of postganglionic, the postganglionic, remember, that travels to the target organs, right? So that's how the organs know what to do based on where they're getting their signal from. Remember that the neurons preganglionic or postganglionic are either non-myelinated or lightly myelinated when we're talking about 
the sympathetic nervous system. The postganglionic neurons in the sympathetic nervous system, like I indicated earlier, travel to the target organs. So the sympathetic preganglionic fibers are relatively short because sympathetic ganglia are generally close to the central nervous system. That's why they're shorter. And the postganglionic fibers run a long course before they innervate the effector organs. So that would be that long chain as opposed to when we're talking about the parasympathetic, the chains are flipped. The preganglionic fibers of the parasympathetic is long where their postganglionic fibers are short. When you get your hands on a medical physiology textbook like Ganong, for example, Rhodes and Bell is another good one, or Guyton, that's been an old tried and true medical physiology book, you can actually get a visual of the comparison of the sympathetic and parasympathetic fibers, including their transmission to the ganglionic neuron and subsequently to the target organs. One of the things to remember, like I said, is that when you were talking sympathetic, the preganglionic um, area is short, where when we're talking parasympathetic, it's longer. When we're talking about the neurotransmitters of the autonomic nervous system, we're specifically talking about acetylcholine, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and dopamine. Norepinephrine is the primary neurotransmitter released at the terminal end um, of the postganglionic neurons at the synapses with the target organ. Norepinephrine and epinephrine bind, again, postsynaptically to our adrenergic receptors, which includes our alpha-1, beta-1, and beta-2, and beta-3 receptors. We don't really talk a whole lot about um, beta-3 receptors. So when norepinephrine binds to our alpha-2 receptor, which is located presynaptically on the post-ganglionic sympathetic nerve terminal, subsequently norepinephrine release is decreased. So there's a bit of a negative feedback system. Did anyone just have an aha moment? So when we talk about medication like dexmedetomidine, for example, which is an alpha-2 agonist, this makes sense why a patient who would receive uh, dexmedetomidine or any other alpha-2 agonist, this is why these patients experience a decrease in their heart rate because it is a negative feedback system and it actually decreases the release of norepinephrine so that heart rate won't go up. Dopamine, um, so dopamine binds to our D1 receptor postsynaptically or our D2 receptors presynaptically. Again, things to remember because you will be taking care of or you may have taken care of patients who are on um, medication that affects the transmission of dopamine as well. Let's talk in a little bit more detail about sympathetic neurotransmitter synthesis. When we're talking about norepinephrine, remember that norepinephrine acts on the postganglionic sympathetic adrenergic nerves. And of course, it's released when an action potential occurs down that nerve. Briefly speaking, and generally speaking, an action potential is when a signal is sent down a nerve. So the amino acid tyrosine is transported into the sympathetic nerve axon. Tyrosine is converted to dopa. Don't confuse dopa with dopamine, but tyrosine is converted to dopa or dihydroxyphenylalanine, and that's converted by tyrosine hydroxylase. 
After that, DOPA is converted then to dopamine, and this is converted by DOPA or dihydroxyphenylalanine decarboxylase, all of these large words to tell you about the synthesis of norepinephrine. Once DOPA is converted to dopamine, dopamine is transported into the vesicles and then converted to norepinephrine, and this is converted by dopamine beta-hydroxylase. What happens in that respect is that it is then transported into the vesicles and can be blocked by uh, certain drugs that you may see in clinical practice. Remember from what we just discussed, dopamine is converted to norepi by an enzyme, that's dopamine beta-hydroxylase. What happens from there is when an action potential occurs, it depolarizes the membrane and it causes calcium to enter into the axon. So remember that when calcium enters the axon, um, it in essence permits norepinephrine to diffuse out of the vesicles into the extracellular or the junctional spaces. So dopamine beta-hydroxylase, and depending on the nerve and other secondary transmitters, such as uh, cyclic AMP, cyclic GMP, ATP, for example, those can all be released along with norepinephrine. Norepinephrine binds to that post-junctional receptor site and stimulates the effector organ. This is how all of that works. Let's move on to talk about epinephrine. Epinephrine, the synthesis happens in the adrenal medulla. And as the adrenal medulla's name would suggest, when you think of medulla, I always think of middle. So as its name, name suggests, the adrenal medulla is in the middle of the adrenal gland. The preganglionic fibers of the sympathetic nervous system synapse with the adrenal gland. So activation of these preganglionic fibers release acetylcholine, which binds to the post-junctional nicotinic receptor sites within tissues. This then leads to a stimulation of norepinephrine synthesis within the uh, medullary cells, but unlike sympathetic neurons, there is an additional enzyme, and this is PNMT, or phenylethylalanine, N-methyltransferase, long word, PNMT, and that adds a methyl group to the norepinephrine molecule, in essence, to form epinephrine. The epinephrine is then released into uh, the blood, perfusing the glands and carried throughout the body. So that's how the synthesis of epinephrine then occurs. Well, when all of these neurotransmitters are synthesized, we need to know, too, how they are metabolized because we just can't have norepinephrine and epinephrine floating around the body in an abundant uh, source. So what are the determinations of binding? Binding of norepinephrine depends on the concentration of norepinephrine near the receptor sites. That's with any medication. Well, these are our natural, our body's natural neurotransmitters. So same thing. It depends on the concentration near the receptor site. If the nerve ending stops releasing the neurotransmitter, the concentration will decrease and eventually it will dissipate from the receptor site. Well, that makes sense because if the nerve terminal is no longer producing the neurotransmitter, obviously the concentration is going to go down and, and obviously it will dissipate and the concentration of that neurotransmitter then will be lower. 
There are a few ways that norepinephrine is actually removed from the intracellular or the junctional spaces. If norepinephrine is removed from those spaces, then subsequently it's going to be released from the receptor sites and slowly released from the body as well. So how is norepinephrine removed from the intracellular spaces? Most, roughly 90%, and again, it's going to depend on your resources, um, you know, in which you're taking your information from, but roughly 90% of the norepinephrine is transported back into the nerve terminals by the neuronal uptake transport system. Okay, that's great. Some of the junctional norepinephrine diffuses into capillaries and is carried out of the tissues by circulation. Therefore, high levels of sympathetic activation in the body increase the plasma concentration of norepi and its metabolites. We'll talk about some of their metabolites later. Some of the norepinephrine or the junctional norepinephrine is metabolized within the extracellular spaces before it reaches the capillaries. And last but not least, a small amount, roughly 5% of norepinephrine, is taken up by the postjunctional tissue or the extraneuronal tissue or extraneuronal uptake, and it's therefore metabolized. When we talk about the enzymes or products of metabolism, remember that both norepinephrine and epinephrine are metabolized by uh, COMPT and MAO, so catechol-O-methyltransferase and monoamine oxidase. The final product of these pathways is vanilla mendeleic acid or VMA. This final product, along with its precursors, norepinephrine and metanephrine, is measured in the urine and plasma in the diagnosis of uh, disease processes that can cause severe hypertension and cardiac arrhythmias, such as those patients who have uh, pheochromocytoma or other neural crest tumors that would um, release uh, norepinephrine in greater, uh, you know, uh, greater concentrations than it normally would. When we talk about the release of norepinephrine, just to back up a little bit, remember that the normal body concentration of norepinephrine, when we're talking about these neurotransmitters, norepinephrine is about 20% of that uh, sympathetic neurotransmission neurotransmitter, and epinephrine is about 80%. In some of these disease processes, depending on the metabolism with uh, our catechol-O-methyltransferase or monoamine oxidase, Sometimes it's not broken down, and then you have a flipped concentration. So instead of having that 80% epinephrine and 20% norepinephrine, um, the body will release epinephrine in a, you know, in a uh, percentage of 20%, and then our norepinephrine in a percentage of 80%. And you can see where that would be a problem for people that would make them extremely hypertensive. This should lead you to some medication that you might have seen or may have given, um, your MAO inhibitors, for example. So if we think about the process of giving this medication, we are inhibiting um, monoamine oxidase, and monoamine oxidase actually um, breaks down your norepinephrine. So if we're giving an MAO inhibitor, we're stopping that process and having an increase in our norepinephrine in circulation for patients who are taking those medications. So when you look at medication that a patient may be on or you are giving, you want to inherently think about how is this 
reacting at the cellular level for the patients that I am taking care of. When we talk about our parasympathetic nervous system, this is that rest and digest, sorry, as opposed to our fight or flight, which is our sympathetic nervous system. This is that relaxation state that our patients um, may be in that are parasympathetically driven. When we discuss the preganglionic um, aspect of the parasympathetic nervous system, we're thinking about cervical sacral or our craniosacral outflow. This arises from the midbrain, the medulla oblongata, and the sacral segments of the spinal cord. So the cranial uh, parasympathetic outflow consists of those preganglionic axons that extend from the brainstem in four specific cranial nerves. Cranial nerve number three, cranial nerve number seven, cranial nerve number nine, and cranial nerve number 10. The cranial outflow has four pairs of ganglia, and the ganglia are associated with the vagus nerve, right? Our vagus nerve is our biggest parasympathetic nerve. The sacral parasympathetic outflow consists of our preganglionic axons in the anterior root of the second through fourth sacral spinal nerve. So we're looking at um, sacral uh, spinal nerve S2 through S4. The vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the major carrier of parasympathetic neuronal traffic. So when we think about parasympathetics and the parasympathetic nervous system, the first thing that should come to mind is a vagal response. These para, uh, preganglionic fibers affect the heart, the lungs, the abdominal organs, with the exception of the distal portion of the colon is what I read when we're talking about um, the abdominal organs and what it does not affect. The parasympathetic nervous system utilizes acetylcholine, which acts on two types of receptors, the muscarinic and the nicotinic cholinergic receptor sites. This is the uh, neurotransmitter that is released by all neurons whose axons exit the central nervous system, including your cranial motor neurons, your alpha motor neurons, your preganglionic sympathetic neurons, and your preganglionic parasympathetic neurons. So we'll talk a bit about the parasympathetic uh, neurotransmitters. When we talk about our parasympathetic neurotransmitters, acetylcholine is the first thing that should come to mind. Um, and it's released by our cholinergic autonomic neurons. What are the cholinergic autonomic neurons? Here's a list of them. They are all of our preganglionic neurons. They're all of our parasympathetic postganglionic neurons, our sympathetic postganglionic neurons that specifically innervate the sweat glands and the sympathetic postganglionic neurons at the end of blood vessels in some of our skeletal muscles. And these are the ones that produce vasodilation when they're stimulated. So that's what you want to think of. Uh, norepinephrine is secreted in small amounts by the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, the adrenal medulla, if you recall, is, an, is important in the release of norepinephrine and epinephrine, of course. But in small amounts when we're talking about the parasympathetic neurotransmission. The action of our parasympathetic receptor sites. So remember I told you that 
acetylcholine will actually uh, stimulate both of both our nicotinic and our muscarinic sites. So when we talk specifically about our nicotinic sites, it's found on the ganglia at the neuromuscular junction. The binding of acetylcholine at this junction actually opens the channel for both sodium and potassium to pass along the membrane. The action of this ligand on the channel is direct and the action is also very fast. This mediates the excitation at target um, cells. Primarily our nicotinic um, receptors are found at the neuromuscular junction again. And remember, this is a postsynaptic um, transmission as opposed to our muscarinic sites. So our muscarinic is more widespread in the brain than are the nicotinic receptors. Uh, The major receptor is found on the smooth muscle, uh, specifically our myocardial muscle and other glands that are innervated by our parasympathetic nerves. As opposed to the nicotinic response, this response is slow and prolonged. It mediates inhibition and excitation, and it's located predominantly, like I said, at your cardiac smooth muscle. Um, They are pre- and postsynaptic, so unlike the nicotinic receptor sites, which are predominantly postsynaptic. When we talk about the metabolism of our parasympathetic neurotransmitter, we're specifically talking about acetylcholine. Although we call acetylcholine a parasympathetic neurotransmitter, remember that it is a transmitter of the sympathetic ganglia as well. Although it's excitatory in the neuromuscular junction, it's inhibitory in the heart. And we talked about that a few minutes ago, how acetylcholine can actually uh, bind to the muscarinic receptors in the heart. What do you think happens at that point? The patient will become bradycardic. Think about that when we're uh, thinking about medication that we give. Acetylcholine is made up of two specific um, medic- uh, chemicals, not medication, but choline and acetate. So how is acetylcholine broken down? Anytime you think about chemical breakdown, what you need to think is enzyme. So the enzyme acetylcholinesterase breaks down acetylcholine. Remember, esterase indicates an enzyme or enzymatic reaction. So where is acetylcholinase located in the greatest quantities? That would be at the synaptic cleft. Again, as its name indicates, the synaptic cleft is an area or space that separates two neurons. It forms a junction between the neurons and helps that nerve impulse pass from one neuron to the other. Think ganglia as well. So this completes our brief discussion on the autonomic nervous system and keeping all of your neurotransmitters kind of in a category and knowing what is preganglionic versus postganglionic is very important. Are the chains long? Are the chains short? Depending on if it's parasympathetic or sympathetic. These are all ideas that you need to think about. This will lead you to, you know, recognizing that if you're giving a patient a certain kind of medication, what receptor sites are they working on? Well, if I have a reaction that I didn't anticipate, is that a bad thing? Not always, because it could be working on other receptors that you weren't thinking of because you weren't looking for that reaction. So again, grab grab your Guyton Hall medical physiology book. Ganong is great. Um, again, Rhodes and Bell is an amazing uh, medical physiology book. And, you know, delve really deep into the autonomic nervous system. Remember, for those of you who are going into anesthesia school, that we are 
uh, master manipulators of the autonomic nervous system. Until next time, be bent on education.